As I mentioned before, our pastor of nearly 40 years is on a missions trip, and it's our great privilege to have one of our elders, Tim Smith, bring forth God's word today. I've had the great joy and honor of sitting under Tim's teaching for nearly 20 years. Tim is a gifted Bible teacher. We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 6 and verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day your daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your holy and precious word. May it be a treasure upon our heart, and may it do, Lord, your holy work within us now. Bless Tim as he preaches, Lord. Give him joy, anoint his words, and may the words penetrate our hearts and souls to draw near to you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Robert. It's good to see you all, and I thank you for the opportunity to address you and preach the word. Jesus, I was listening on the radio this morning, and the preacher was talking about when Jesus was taken up to the mount, so-called a transfiguration, he came all shining white, and the Father weighed in with some words, and he said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So today... We're going to be listening to some of the words Jesus said, and we want to care. Someone said, well, I know who it was, but we can't give every reference to every quote. But the biggest problem in America today is apathy. But who cares? Well, we have to care because God said, listen to him. Context to this teaching is from the famous Sermon on the Mount. This sermon begins with, a teaching on salvation, and it ends with an invitation. But the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, the bulk of it, is the application section, and Jesus is teaching about the righteousness and relationships of the disciple. In our particular text today, he's teaching about one of the behaviors having to do with practicing our religion or our righteousness before God, our secret service to God, if you will. And three examples are given in the sermon of this kind of practice. There's giving, prayer, and fasting. In verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus sets a theme by saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So these forms of worship that Jesus is teaching about are done by all sorts of religious people. But his disciples are to do them differently. And we are to beware of our motives when we do these things. One way to beware of our motives that Jesus points to is to practice these things privately, before God only, secretly, to keep us from becoming frauds. I will note that Jesus assumes that all of his disciples will practice their worship in these three ways, giving, praying, and fasting. This morning's text hones in on prayer, and prayer is a conversation with God, and if so, 
A good place to carry on such a conversation, the best place, if you can get it, is a private room away from noise, people, and distractions. The scriptures don't teach that all prayer is to be secretive. There's many examples of corporate prayer with two or three or any number of people. But this prayer that Jesus is referring to here, this private prayer, is to be part of our practice of righteousness, our normal activity as a worshiper. It's assumed by Jesus to be a commonplace part of our lives. Jesus in verse 5, 6, and 7 doesn't say that you should pray. He says, when you pray, when you pray. Um, yeah, my favorite poems are the ones I can memorize really short, like elephants are big and gray, Christians pray. Jesus didn't say Christians have to pray. He assumes they pray because they are. Now note that in order to pray in a room with the door closed with no one else there, it's absolutely necessary to believe. No one will pray in private with no one around to see and no one to hear to a being that they don't believe is there, right? Verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells us that God is unimpressed with ceremony and quantity of words. The idea of prayer among many people then and today is to, well, you inform the deity of what you want and you ask him for things. And the more times and the more ways you do it, the better the results from the higher power. That's the normal thought of prayer. Jesus says, do not be like that. He says, the Father doesn't need to be informed of what you need in your prayer. He already knows that more than we do. So then what's the point? What should prayer be? Jesus himself in the, our text gives a blueprint or a pattern or a directory for our prayers as to brevity, order, and content. This prayer is given in six or seven. I like to think of them as seven petitions. There's three petitions concerning the one we're praying to, God's name, his kingdom, his will. And then there's four petitions of how we fit in, provision, pardon, purity, and preservation. Every now and then uh, I meet a person who says their prayer is when they enjoy a sunset or they're sitting at the seashore or taking a hike in the forest or enjoying one of their creative hobbies. But I don't see how those things can be fit into Jesus's prescription for prayer. Verse 9, let's look at the petitions. I'm going to just concentrate on two of them and gloss over a few of the others. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Even though this prayer is in a secret room with only you there, we're taught to pray our Father rather than my Father because we're associating ourselves with all the other children of God by adoption, the church. You could think of a, a prayer, this prayer in particular, as a letter sent from earth to heaven. So it starts with name and address, Father in heaven. It's good and right to think of God as father. You want to get used to that as his child. He's the common father of all humanity by creation. It says in Malachi 2.10 and Acts 17.28. But he's a special, in a special way, a special manner, a father to the saints by adoption and regeneration. So the first petition Christ directs us to is hallowed or sanctified be your name. 
that is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but may the expression of your person in all you say and all you do be treated as holy and revered by me before all people. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray. I'm just not going to focus on these verses. I'm just cutting to the uh, core. We are to pray for the success of the gospel and the conversion of God's elect. Now, even though we're to pray your kingdom come, do you think God's kingdom is going to be prevented from coming? Of course not. These things, his kingdom is coming upon us now and will be completely fulfilled at the glorious return of Christ. So what is the purpose of our prayers? Matthew Henry said, what God has promised, we must pray for. For promises are given not to supersede, but to enliven and encourage prayer. His kingdom is a good thing. Your kingdom come. Just an example of what scripture means when it says kingdom, we can find from 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, just paraphrased, the kingdom is the gospel of Christ speeding ahead and being glorified. It's being rescued and protected from evil. It's the Lord directing our hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. That's a summary of the kingdom, what it means, 2 Thessalonians 3. Now, there's an unmentioned element of trust here in a fundamental truth that there is a God and he's good. It'd be a risky thing to pray for the influence and authority of a kingdom from some king to come unless you trust and know this king to be very kind and know what's best for you. Now we're going to move to the personal petitions. There's two truths presented in these personal petitions. Jesus thinks these things are pretty important. People are asking, Jesus, how should we pray? How do you pray? Well, what should we pray? Everybody's praying this, praying that. Jesus said, pray like this. And he gives these three things. So he thinks they're very important. It's the only ones he mentioned. If we had to choose the most important things we could pray for, we might come up with good things like, use me for your kingdom, bless and prosper my life and my plans, Give me a good wife, a good husband. Keep our family healthy. Take this or that trouble out of my life. And none of these things are wrong. And we're invited in the Bible to pray to Jesus about anything and everything. Any request and burden on your heart. However, when Jesus was asked, how should we pray? We have to consider that he deemed these things the most important things in the life of a disciple in our lifetimes. So Jesus is pointing us to some truth in this prayer, truth about what is real and our place in that reality. The first truth I see that he points us to is in this prayer is that we're very needy. We're dependent, we're in debt, and we're in danger. And secondly, he's pointing us to the only solution to our dependence, debt, and danger. God the Father. Jesus is the ideal teacher of these things because he knows exactly the depth of our helplessness. He knows our sin. He knows our dangerous condition. He knew the cost of redemption that he absorbed in his own body on the cross. 
giving up his precious life. So he's in a good position to tell us what we need to pray. So let's look at the first one in verse 11, dependence. Give us. When's the last time you heard someone give a compliment? He's so dependent. No, the compliment's the other way around. You know, he or she is so independent. We want to pretend we can make it on our own and don't need nothing from nobody. And this is such a delusion. Only from God do we receive our daily bread and all the needs he created us with in this life. Food, drink, clothing, shelter, air, health, metabolism, everything. When we don't feel the need for these things, we easily forget to pray for them, and we can delude ourselves into thinking that we can provide them on our own. We've got that peace. Psalm 145, for example, we're told that all food comes from the hand of God, generously opened to all his creatures. Quote, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Where do you get your food? The fridge. Right. But before that, Stop and Shop, Walmart, Big Y. Before that, where do they get it? I don't know. I have no, I never thought about farms, ranchers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, good. And the farms and the ranchers get it from plants, and which needs sunshine and rain and soil, which is provided by God. So it's a short connect the dots back to God from your refrigerator. By the way, he's the one that makes the refrigerator run with the laws of thermodynamics and all that coolant stuff. Your foods trace back to God's generosity, and the ancients saw it as rain and sunshine. In Jeremiah 14.22, we're reminded that no one else, for example, can make it rain. He's the only one. Scripture says it does not rain by itself. Jeremiah says, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers by themselves? Are you not he, O Lord, you do all these things? Acts 17.28 even broadens it further of our dependence. It says, in him we live and move and exist. That's pretty dependent. Can't move without him. Can't live without him. Can't exist without him. Now, there's a danger of, as we said, arrogantly turning away from God. We see this danger exemplified in the prayer of Augur. You've heard of the prayer of Jabez, they wrote a book, but there's a prayer of Augur, more famous to me, from Proverbs 30, verse 7 and following. He says in part, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? When we're living in circumstances of plenty, there is a great temptation to rely on ourselves to a point where we feel nothing of our need of God and can even come to a place of blasphemy, thinking, who's the Lord? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good around here. Abraham Lincoln, this particular text has been quoted from this pulpit for various reasons on many occasions, but I thought it fit here. Our president Lincoln, 157 years ago next month, addressed the nation, proclaiming a day of fasting and humiliation and prayer. He said, 
We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. If we're honest, I think many of us feel from time to time we can skip that part of the petition, give us today our daily bread. We think, all set there, just ate, got plenty, as if that part of the prayer is for starving people in Africa somewhere. But we have to remember there's only one, Jesus is pointing us to this truth, there's only one who is sovereign over all the food supply and the distribution of all wealth. Give us today our daily bread reminds us of the truth that God the Father alone is the source, the supplier, the distributor of everything we need, including the groceries and the lunch we'll be eating today, and the means to obtain it, to get it to the table. Next petition, verse 12, debt. So that was dependence. Now we move on to debt. Forgive us. Forgive us. By the way, it's the most important thing in your life and the most important thing in the Bible, people. You've got to be forgiven of your sins before God. Whatever that, however you do that, you've got to do it. And there's only one way, and it's Jesus Christ. Forgive us. Jesus gave an example. Remember the parable example of two men went to the temple to pray? Something like this from Luke 18. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others like they were beneath them. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a religious leader and the other a despicable person. The religious leader, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm honest and just and a faithful husband better than other people. Definitely not like this despicable guy over there. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of everything I get to the building fund. The other guy, Jesus said, standing far away, ashamed to come near the place of prayer, he was so ashamed, he wouldn't even lift his eyes. He wouldn't even lift his eyes. He looked down at the ground, and he smacked his chest in a gesture like of rebuke to his wicked heart. And all he could say was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Terrible, despicable person. Jesus gives the astonishing conclusion I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, not the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. The starting point for forgiveness is admission that you are in debt. I am in debt. We are in debt. Deep debt. There's no provision for bankruptcy. There's no escape. There's no faking your death in a hot air balloon or whatnot and try to get out of it. There's a host of evil propaganda out in the world that's probably been around for a long time that tries to convince people that everything's okay, you'll be fine, you're not so bad. James, when he addresses sin in chapter 3, speaking of all of us, all Christians, he says, we all stumble in many ways. We can ignore our sin, we can try to suppress our guilt, we can dull our conscience, we can grow old enough to forget all the harms we committed to people. 
But time does not cure the record. You, just inserting a small housekeeping lesson to teens, you can't put dirty clothes in the hamper, dirty wet clothes, and then wait for them to get clean. You can wait years. They're not going to get any cleaner. There's only one cure for our guilt and shame and debt. And this prayer reminds us that we have offended the God and only he can cancel our debt. This prayer further reminds us of the cross of Christ and the terrible payment for sins necessary to cancel the debt and that he paid for it willingly. Now Jesus firmly associates this petition firmly, I mean strongly, with a lifestyle of forgiving everyone who sins against us every time. Right in the middle of the prayer, Jesus embeds in the middle of teaching us a blueprint for how to approach the Father, he embeds right in the middle of it a reminder of the primary characteristic of a citizen of heaven, a lifestyle of forgiveness. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We strengthen our assurance of God's pardon when we pardon others. And Matthew, after this prayer, Jesus goes on to drive it home. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In Mark eleven twenty five, whenever you stand praying, talking about prayer, so whenever it is that you pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. There's a parable in Matthew 18. At the end of it goes like this. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And Jesus concludes, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. It's pretty important to God. Knowing God and experiencing his forgiveness gives us the ability to forgive others and thereby gives us the assurance of our salvation. And then finally, verse 13, we're in danger. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why are we to pray, do not lead us into temptation? This is a petition that can be a little confusing because of the meaning of the word temptation. Ordinarily means temptation to sin. And James 1.13 tells us God doesn't tempt anyone to sin, to evil. But the word translated temptation is more broad. It can have the sense of trial or testing or difficulty. And we know that our faith needs to be tested to be proved genuine and strong. But some tests are so severe, they're so severe that our faith could not stand up to the strain. So therefore, we pray not to be brought into tests of such severity that we would fail and experience the shame and consequences of sin. We have the promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a good one to memorize. No temptation has overtaken you, 
but such that is common to man, and God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. There's always a way out, but we're not always willing to find it. So Jesus tells us to pray to the Father, give us the willingness and strength to be preserved in the temptation and to come through victorious or be kept from it altogether when he knows that in our weak state we would not prevail. This particular petition of Jesus is pointing us to the danger we are in and the need we have of God's strength and power and protection every day from the evil one, from the world, and from ourselves. Those who have confidence in their own ability to stand under the test are going to ignore this petition, but those who know their faith is a gift of God and sustained by God, and that in themselves nothing good lives, that is in their flesh, Romans 7:18. those people will pray to be saved from a trial from which they cannot cope, or if it's inescapable, to be supplied by the grace necessary to endure. The request to lead us not and deliver us presumes, of course, sovereignty of God, that God has the power over every circumstance, every evil, every trial, at every place and in every time. So we're in a hopelessly dangerous situation without the protection, power, and continuous help and deliverance from God our Father. This is our true state, and Jesus wants our prayers to firmly rest on the truth of this dependence. He's the rock. He's our support. He's our strength. He doesn't want us to be deceived and feel self-sufficient. Jesus said in John 15, 5, paraphrasing, you can do a lot when you're in me, Jesus said to his disciples. You can do a lot when you're in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's pretty dependent. In closing, I, I don't want to be uh, irreverent to God in my paraphrase here. So I'll start off by saying God really liked Job. You know, he really liked him. Obviously, God likes Job. Everybody knows that. And God blessed Job at the end of his life. But during a critical matter, Job begged for an audience with God. I want to talk to him now, now, now. I want to meet with him. I have to meet with him. So God said, okay. And this is how the meeting went. It's a remarkable conversation. Job had been saying how great he'd been doing, staying out of sin and all, moaning and groaning about how God abandoned him. God comes and peppers Job with questions in a fun sort of way. Fun for God, anyway. I think it was fun for God. First thing he says, who is this guy talking to me this way? Now, I have some questions for you, Job, and you can school me. You school me with the answers. What can you do? Anything? Have you ever in your life once commanded the sun to come up? And where have you been, Job? How far have you traveled? Have you been to the bottom of the sea? Have you seen the gates of death? Oh, that's right. You've been to East Uz on Highway 9. Forgot you're such a traveler. Can you separate light from darkness, Job? Put them exactly where they're supposed to be. Establish the laws of uh, wave particle physics. Command them to do exactly what they're supposed to do. Sure you can. You were born then. You're so old and wise. What are you now, 61 and a half, Job? Woo! Job, can you do anything at all? 
Can you control the weather, Job? How about just for one day? A little rain shower. I'll tell you how to do it. Just shout really loud. It's easy for you, Job. How about the stars? I'll tell you what. Bring out just one constellation, just one night while I take a break. Job, can you put instinct and wisdom into the mind of animals? You want to contend with the Almighty? Let's have at it. Let me hear your answers. What do you know? Where have you been? What can you do? Job's first answer. Um... I'm not really that significant. I don't think I'll open my big mouth anymore, if you please. But God doesn't let him go. He continues, Job, can your voice be as loud as thunder? And then God, let's just end this, Job. I'll tell you what. Clothe yourself with power and dignity and honor and majesty. Show me some powerful anger to humble every proud person on earth with one of your looks. Wipe them all out, put them six feet under, bind their souls for judgment, and then I'll admit to you, you can save yourself. Finally, Job says, uh, you can do anything. I didn't know what I was talking about. I take it all back. I'm going to the dust pile now to rub some ashes on myself. The point is, we're all dependent, dependent, and we need God a whole lot more than we perceive. We'll have to bring back the bumper sticker, smile, you're a lot worse than you think. And we know so much less than we think. Resisting evil and sin requires a vigilant dependence upon and trust in the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. Jesus called his generation unbelieving and perverted. When what is true is rejected, then what is false is adopted into the mind. And wrong thinking leads to wrong behavior. I hope this movie doesn't have a lot of swears, but I reference a movie, I think it's called The Jerk, Steve Martin is in it. And I had to relook up the scene, see if I was remembering it right, and I was. But there's a, a deranged person who picks his name at random from the phone book to kill him and gets an AK-47 and hides in the bushes where he's working and starts firing at him. And he works at a gas station, and all the bullets are hitting the oil cans. And uh, the defective thinking of the character, Steve Martin, hey, Jimmy, come look at these cans. They're all defective. They're all spring and leaks. Come over here. And Jimmy's hiding in the corner trying to tell him somebody's shooting at him. So he runs away and hides near the soda machine, and the bullets start to hit those cans. Then he runs and hides behind the display of more oil cans and the bullets. And finally, he figures it out. It's the cans. Stay away from the cans. So wrong thinking leads to wrong behavior. And much of the teaching ministry of Jesus was to untwist wrong thinking and point us to what's true. And this prayer fits that pattern. If you don't believe there's a God, you're not going to pray. And if you don't believe that he's good, you're not going to pray that his kingdom come. And if you've been trained to believe all your food comes from your financial prowess and your ingenuity and your food budget and whatnot, you're not going to pray, give us our daily bread. And if you don't believe you owe anything, you're not going to ask for forgiveness. And if you have confidence in your own ability to stand under trial, you're not going to pray, deliver us. So in Finally, I just want to say, go ahead and when you pray, ask him for anything. That's what he invited us to do. Ask for help in time of need, but don't forget for what you really need. And Jesus told us what we really need. We need his kingdom and his will to be done. We need him to provide for us here. 
We need his forgiveness and grace to forgive others. We need his strength, armor, and power against all the evil against us in this life. All these needs are met in him with his ability. And remember these things when you pray by yourself in secret. Don't put on a show for other people, even if there are other people there, and don't put on a show for God. It's not the quantity of your words, it's that they're rooted in truth. And this is the truth. We are dependent, we're in debt, and we're in danger. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do cry out to the only one that can help and has promised and pledged and proved your help in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim. We know that winter is a harsh reality in New England. And with it comes isolation, less community, and real sadness and, and real, real sickness. Study after study shows the further you get from the equator, the more depression we see, the more seasonal affect, and the more apathy towards life. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the further we get from God that we see spiritual sickness and spiritual apathy as well. So I want to encourage all of us as we go out into these darkest, shortest, coldest months of the year to really use it as a spiritual wake-up call, very much like we would use cholesterol numbers or the scale or blood pressure. But let's use this as a time to equip ourselves to truly know and to truly enjoy Jesus. And here's exactly what God prescribes. Hear his voice, have his ear, and belong to his body. Hear his voice, have his ear, and belong to his body. I promise you that remedy will lead to an abundant life. God bless you.